All right, good morning, church. Well, welcome. So good to be together. So good to have an opportunity as we transition from singing the word of Christ to studying the word of Christ. So I hope you got a Bible with you. We're going to open it to Mark's gospel, chapter one. And let me just welcome those of you who are guests with us this morning, whether you're joining us here in the room or by live stream. It's a joy to have you with us. I hope all of you come away encouraged by our time in the word. We're starting a new series in the month of December focused on Advent, the arrival of Jesus Christ. And we're going to be looking at four passages in the scripture that I think there are such massive pillars that these texts could hold up the whole New Testament. Uh, They're just massive statements about the identity of Jesus and the work that he does in the world uh, as he arrives. So we're going to look at those passages. They're going to be brief passages. So today it's just two verses. So part of that is it enables you to spend time, if, if the Lord leads you to do so, this month to reflect on Advent and to even possibly internalize, memorize these four pillar texts that hold up so much of what the New Testament tells us about Jesus. I would encourage you, I'm going to read the text very briefly. It's just verse 14 and 15 of chapter 1. But hold your Bible open because we've got more work to do in the broader context of Mark's gospel. So Mark chapter 1, follow along, and I'm going to read out loud verse 14 and 15. Mark's gospel records, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So there's a a website that some of you might be familiar with. It's called masterclass.com and it enables those who subscribe to it to study in a wide array of fields and to study from instructors who are globally recognized as industry leaders in these fields. So science, science and technology and, and sales and, and design and style and fashion and music and cooking and all these things where you can study under the grades. You can study ball handling and scoring from Steph Curry. You can study cooking with Gordon Ramsay. You can study the fundamentals of gymnastics with Simone Biles, right? Some of the, I went, and just out of curiosity, I went yesterday and I looked at what are the most popular choices that people say, this is the class I want to take. So the most popular classes that they have among them are dog training. And if you have a dog like ours, you understand why you would want the experts to help you out, right? So there's dog training. Another top option was Texas-style barbecue. Apparently, people go to Texas, right? And you eat the brisket, and it's like, there's something going on there that's really special, and I want to learn, right? So there's that, and then there's, there's creative writing, there's storytelling, there's poker is one of the top options that people go to study how to be better at that, right? So I'm just scrolling through all these different options, and I'm like, that would be cool to learn. I would like to learn that from that person, right? Just one after another. And, you know, even though I take interest in a lot of the things that were there, um, cookie lessons and gardening lessons and writing lessons, I'm thinking about Advent, and I come away realizing what I need to learn the most is actually not cooking and gardening and those other things, though that could be helpful. Um, The thing that I'm worst at that I need to learn is waiting. I need waiting lessons. (laughs) Because I, you might be the same way, I don't wait well. And enter Advent. Advent wants to teach God's people to wait well, to wait for him, to trust in him, to put our hope 
in him, right? Advent, it's been celebrated by the church as a season all the way back into the fourth century. The church has been saying, I think we need to take some time every calendar year and focus on this need to wait and to anticipate what the arrival of Messiah means, what his coming involves for the world, right? So this this celebration goes way back because the church thinks we need this. We need to enter into the waiting of God's people all the way back into the times of the Old Testament. You think about this in in connection with our culture in our time. We particularly don't wait well, right? And there's a message that Advent delivers to us that we so need to hear, and it has a little bit of an edge, right? So there is an ache in this world that Black Friday can't fix. Advent makes that clear to us. There's a a writer and a New Testament professor named Timothy Paul Jones, and I was reading an article from him called Why Celebrate Advent. He writes these words. The whole creation, the Apostle Paul declared, has been groaning together for redemption. In Advent, Christians embrace the groaning, recognizing it not as hopeless whimpering over present lack but expectant yearning for the divine banquet Jesus is preparing for us. Just as the ancient Israelites awaited the coming of the Messiah in flesh, we await the coming of the Messiah in glory. Advent wants to teach us how to wait. Advent wants to teach us even how to grieve and yet to grieve with hope. And Advent offers a reply to some of the deepest existential questions that humans ask. And we're gonna walk through some of those questions this month, that's why we're framing it up as answers at Advent. And the first question we're asking is, can God be trusted? Two points to unpack, the first is this, promises made promises made. So Pastor Mark Dever, pastor's up at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. And uh, years ago, he took his congregation through 66 weeks where he preached each week a sermon on a book of the Bible. He just walked through the whole Bible, all 66 books of the Bible. And so one sermon was on Genesis, and the next week's sermon was on Exodus, and he walked all the way through the Old Testament, and that became a series. And then he walked all the way through each book of the New Testament, and then that whole preaching series became two big volumes. One called The Message of the Old Testament, one called The Message of the New Testament, both by Mark Dever. What I love about it is that the title of those two books is Promises Made, The Message of the Old Testament, Promises Kept, The Message of the New Testament, which helps us remember as Christians that the Bible is not just this you know, collection of disparate and disconnected moral tales that are supposed to make a difference in our lives. It's not Aesop's fables except it happens to be true, no. The Bible is one unifying big story about how God can be trusted. The promises that he makes are the promises that he keeps, and he keeps them in Christ. So this is in your notes if you're taking notes. All of God's Old Testament promises looked toward the arrival of his Messiah. You read back to the Old Testament and you can tell it is actually explicit. Sometimes it's implied or inferred, other times it's actually explicit that they are, God's people are not just waiting for something. They're not just waiting for this kind of blessing from heaven. They're waiting for someone. 
They're waiting for the protagonist. They're waiting for the hero figure whom God has promised from the beginning. You go all the way back to Genesis where everything went sideways. Adam and Eve, they sinned against God and curses came flooding into the world. Everything is broken. Our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, creation itself is broken, right? And so God comes in and he says, you rebelled and now here are all the consequences of your rebellion. But then in Genesis 3, in the midst of all these curses landing for, as consequences for our rebellion, God announces to them, someone's gonna come though, and he's gonna make everything right. The seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, days to come, someone's gonna come from, the, from a daughter of Eve, and he will crush, it says in Genesis 3.15, he will crush the serpent's head. And in crushing the serpent's head, it said he will bruise his heel. So we find out all the way back there in the first book of the Bible that when the promised one comes, he will triumph over evil and his triumph over evil will involve his own suffering. We already know some things. The arrows and trajectories are already flying toward things we know about Jesus who is bruised and who crushes evil. Right, so there's this promise about the anointed one, about the Messiah, about the Christ. They had different terms that they used throughout the Old Testament to speak of the one who was to come. You keep reading through Genesis and you find out this promise is made to Abraham, the patriarch of the faith. And, and God says to Abraham, somebody's gonna come from a line of your descendants and through him shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That is, Jews and Gentiles will all alike, people from all nations will be brought into one covenant family, and I will pour out my blessing forever on that people. It's an awesome promise, but it all hinges on the arrival of somebody who's to come in the future. You keep reading, you go all the way through, and you get into the prophets, and this promised one is gonna be the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, he will suffer in our place. He will be punished in our place so that he can buy us back for God. He's gonna be a redeemer. He's gonna be a savior. He's going to be a substitute. You read other texts. Keep reading, get to like Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11. These are the classic Christmas text, Advent text. And we learn something, not, not just about the fact that the coming one is going to suffer, but the coming one, those texts say, is going to rule. He's gonna, he's gonna be in charge. The government is gonna be on his shoulders. We're gonna call him the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, and his kingdom will outlast everything. It will go on forever. And everybody, he's gonna rule over this vast kingdom and all of his subjects who have trusted in this Messiah, this promised one, all of his subjects will live under his rule, under his blessing. They'll sleep well at night. It'll be shalom to the ends of the earth. It's gonna be awesome, and it's gonna be awesome when he comes. All of this was predicted. In short, if you read through the Old Testament, all these descriptions of the coming one, the promised one, you realize when he gets here, it's a new beginning. It's, it's a new beginning for God's people. It's a new beginning on, on the world, right? And so how, it's interesting, how does Mark's gospel, I hope you still got it open, how does Mark's gospel open? Verse one, first two words, the beginning. <laughs> the beginning of the gospel, that means good news. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So friends, the opening words, the beginning, would not have been lost on this original audience because what book of the Bible begins with a reference to the beginning? Genesis, the very first page of the Bible, the very first sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God did something. In the beginning, God 
created. And so Mark 1 is tipping its hat. Mark 1 is saying, this is Genesis rebooted. We're getting a new beginning. We're getting a new start. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel, the good news that arrives, you see that word there, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In other words, Mark is saying right here from the beginning, every word of it was true. All the things that we were told, they're coming true, and they're coming true because he's here now. Everything starts changing because he's come. And so Mark ties the arrival of Jesus, not only to these big language of in the beginning and gospel and, and Christ, Messiah, right? He's not just using these awesome words that are hyperlinks to the Old Testament, but then he ties it to ancient prophecy in verse two. He starts quoting Old Testament prophets, especially Isaiah, but he sneaks in a quote from Malachi chapter three. He only attributes it to Isaiah because Isaiah chapter 40, I think this is why Mark is doing it. Isaiah 40 is a lens that focuses the, the word from Malachi chapter three. So he's quoting from Isaiah chapter four, 40. And so Mark is essentially, he's just saying, remember what the prophets said about the arrival of the Messiah that right before the Messiah came, somebody would come first. A messenger would come to clear a path for the Messiah's message and for his person to be received. And so he quotes that text from the Old Testament. So there's this messenger who is gonna come. This is what the ancient prophecy said. Before Messiah comes, we're gonna see a messenger who's gonna show up on the scene. He's gonna come fresh out of the wilderness and he's gonna clear a path. He's gonna be kind of a human bulldozer that introduces the Messiah to the world. And you meet the human bulldozer in verse four. John came baptizing in the wilderness. The, the bulldozer has a name. That was John's sort of gift mix is he had bulldozer capacities. And that's exactly what the text would say about what he did. Now that the arrival of the Messiah is here, every valley is lifted up and every mountain comes down and we're clearing away the rough places because Messiah is on the way. He'll be here shortly. And that's exactly what John the Baptist did. He comes out fresh out of the wilderness and he clears a path for Jesus. And if you, you just keep reading, right? There's so much there. I wish we could unpack even more of it. But if you're steeped in the Old Testament story, what happens next is really exciting too because John starts baptizing people and then here comes Jesus Christ to the Jordan River and Jesus is baptized and then he's led into the wilderness. You see that on the page, right? So he's... He goes into the water and then he goes into the wilderness. Well, this probably reminds us if you're steeped in the Old Testament, there's a story about a water and a wilderness of people who passed through waters and wilderness and of people who were tested in the wilderness after they passed through the waters. Does that sound familiar? It's just the biggest story in the Old Testament. It's the story of the Exodus. God's people, they're saved from under the, the slavery and the, the thumb of Pharaoh. They're rescued and they come out and they're led underneath the waters of the Red Sea. They pass through on dry ground, walls of water on both sides. They pass beneath the waters and they come out and they walk through the wilderness and they're tested in the wilderness. And what happens when they are tested in the wilderness? How do they do on the test? They fail the test pretty epically, right? They fail the test in the wilderness. So what is Mark saying to people steeped in the Old Testament? He's saying Jesus Christ is the new representative. He's, the, he's gonna step into the, the shoes of God's Old Testament people and he's gonna get it right. 
He's gonna step into the shoes and he's gonna write a new beginning. He's gonna write a new story. He's gonna pass through the waters just like they did. He's gonna be led into the wilderness. He's gonna be tested in the wilderness. And what happens? He passes through the waters. He goes into the wilderness. He's tested in the wilderness. And unlike Israel, he passes. (laughs) He is obedient. He is faithful to God. We got a new start. We have a new representative, right? What is Mark doing? He's pulling out all the stops. He's ringing all the bells he can get his hands on from the Old Testament. He's jumping up and down and he's waving his arms. And what's he essentially saying? He's saying, it was all true. We waited for centuries and he's here and it was all true. You can trust that what God said is true because here he is. He's the Messiah and he's here to take the world back. That's what the kingdom means, the reign of God. It's the announcement that when God comes, he's gonna take the world back. And Mark is saying, you look at his title. He's the Christ. He's got the messenger clearing the path before him, right? Think about that. So John the Baptist, he's clearing the path before Jesus gets here. And how does he clear the path? What is John's message He says, I'm here to roll out the red carpet. Ancient prophets had the privilege of announcing that one day he will come. He's actually gonna be here in five minutes. I'm rolling out the red carpet to introduce him to you. And when he gets here, it's go time. And if the people ask the question, what does that mean? What does it mean that the Messiah is going to arrive and everything changes? John the Baptist says, God's on the way over and if you wanna be ready, the time to own up is now. And so they come to the Jordan confessing. They come to the Jordan confessing we have rebelled. They come to the Jordan confessing we treated God as small. We domesticated religion. And they come to the waters confessing the time to own up is now. They come into the waters. He calls it a baptism of repentance. It's a washing that's gonna change your allegiance. You come in one way, you go out another way. It's a baptism of repentance. It's a new start for the people of God. He's got this language. It's almost, it's almost edgy, right? Advent is coming, get ready, start repenting. And you start to ask the question, wait, so is Advent, the arrival of God, is it a promise or a threat? And the answer is both. It's a promise and a threat. If we receive the king on his terms, we enter into the kingdom of God. And that, that, that's indescribable grace that makes that possible. The king's gonna have to die to make that possible, eventually. In short order, the king's gonna have to die to make that possible. He's gonna shed his blood to save his people. So there's the promise side. You receive this kingdom, you enter into it, and you're good forever. You're accepted by God on terms of grace. But then there's the threat side. What do you do if you spurn it? What happens? Right, well, here's the threat side. There is no other savior coming. There is no name under heaven by which men must be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. There is only one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. You got no other hope options. You got no other salvation options. He's the one or we're toast, right? And and here's the other thing. The king's terms are non-negotiable. There's no no haggling over price. There's There's no bartering there. He becomes savior, Lord, treasure, or he stands over us as judge. Those are the terms. And so they come to the river and they say, we'll take option one. (laughs) 
we will go with that repentance option. They come confessing. It's a baptism of repentance, right? What, what was the, the effect of John's preaching and the effect of Mark chapter one is essentially the same. Everything God said was true. It's time to reckon with reality. It's Advent season, so let me ask you a question, Christian. How's your waiting going? How's your waiting going? Where are your ultimate hopes pointing? If God's word was a light and it scanned over your life, what would it discover your ultimate hopes are? Your, your ultimate fears, what, what does your anger tell about the things that you hope most for? And don't believe the lies that this world will tell you, right? This world will tell you that you, Christian, you're waiting for him in vain, that the gospel is a relic, that the gospel is a sugar pill. But friends, the gospel is not a sugar pill. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for everybody who repents and comes to the waters of the Jordan and leaves looking to Christ our hope, there's life that lasts forever. We need waiting lessons and Advent is here to help. Advent is a master class on waiting. Advent is training us to wait. You turn to any page of the Old Testament and what are God's people doing on that page? Waiting. I don't care what else is happening on the surface of things. Underneath that page, the people are waiting. And you know what else they did? I love this. They set their waiting to music. Read the Psalms. We just spent some, some weeks in the Psalms. Read the Psalms. They set their waiting to music. They gave it melodies and choirs, and they sang about the waiting, and they sang about the lament and the silence and the pain that they experienced in this broken world. I love Psalm 37.7. It says this, be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. It's hard to find a verse that talks about two things I stink at at the same time, silence and waiting. And it says, be silent and wait. And how badly we need this as Christians right now in our culture. Just think with me for a minute about the difference between Advent and Amazon. All right, I know, okay, it's a touchy subject, apparently. Um, a nervous laughter prickles through the room. Think, think about the difference between Advent and Amazon, because both of them can train us, right? You, you, you make an, Advent, uh, an Amazon order, and, um, and right after you click go, you know, you click pay, five minutes later, it, it's like the doorbell rings, and, and there's the box, and it's like, is this a postal, is this magic? Like, what is going on? How did this get here so fast, right? So you, you get built into this kind of timetable that's amazing, right? And if, if it doesn't arrive quickly, you have the ability to track the package, right? So you can go track that thing and you can find out, okay, apparently it's stuck in Iowa. I'm not sure why, but apparently it's stuck in Iowa. It'll be here momentarily. It's gonna ship out this afternoon from that place that it was stuck in Iowa, right? And then when it eventually arrives, if it arrives and it's in bad form or something's wrong, you got options there too, right? You can write a one-star review, right? So you got multiple different options going on here. Let me ask you the question, are your joys and hopes being trained by Advent or Amazon? I've seen Christians lately writing 
one-star reviews of the Christian faith. Why? Because my package is stuck in Iowa and God's gonna hear about it. And matter of fact, I'm gonna go public with my displeasure. He should fire his entire customer service department because my joy package is stuck in Iowa and I'm not having it. But what if as Christians though, we learned Advent? What if we learned to be silent and to wait? What if as Christians we learned to live in the gap between promises made and promises kept? And that's the second point for us to think about, promises kept. The, the awesome thing about Mark 1, Mark 1 is not, is not minor key music. It is not, you know, um, it is not sad and, and doleful. It is, it is rejoicing. It is, um, it is a celebration. Why? Because it's talking about a new beginning. It's talking about an arrival. It's talking about a kingdom. It's talking about good news and a gospel. It's talking about the moment where the waiting gives way to fulfillment. We've been waiting and now God fulfills on his promises. Jesus' very first words, if you're taking notes, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Opening words, the first words, if you got a red letter Bible, the very first words that Jesus speaks in Mark's gospel are the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. You think about it. In those words that Jesus speaks, four of the most prominent words in the entire New Testament are all touched on. Kingdom, gospel, repent, and believe. I mean, these are massive structures of New Testament thought. I love what... Um, a scholar named Herman Ritterboss, who's one of the finest scholars of the 20th century, lived for 98 years, died in 2007, born in 1909, and just loved God's word and wrote about it almost all the way to the end of his life. Here's one of the things he says about this. He said, the time is fulfilled, quoting, the time is fulfilled indicates that the threshold of the great future has been reached, that the door has been opened, and the prerequisites for the realization of the divine work of consummation are present, so that now the concluding drama can start. Look, that is a mouthful of awesome. The drama can begin. The conditions necessary for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God are in place. Everything can start changing and it can start now. Mark introduces Jesus Christ as the long promised king, not only by quoting ancient prophecy, Isaiah, Malachi, and others, but, but he's gonna sing it. He's gonna, he's gonna sing one of the favorite songs of Israel. One of Israel's favorite songs was Psalm chapter two. I think one of the reasons I, there's a hint that it was one of Israel's favorite songs is the Hebrew authors who wrote the New Testament for us, who were steeped in the Old Testament, can't stop quoting Psalm 2. They, they quote it more than almost any other passage in the Old Testament. They loved Psalm 2, and Psalm 2 was God's people's way of singing themselves into Advent. It was, it was a song that instructed the people to say, we're looking for a day when God will publicly install his son as king. Here's the text, I'm gonna put it on the screen. I, this is God talking, have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain, 
You are my son. So the king is his son. Ask of me. Start asking for stuff, right? Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. So don't miss it. We not only read of a day where God would install his son as king, Psalm 2 told us the words of the installation speech of that day that would be coming. So then when you come over to Mark chapter 1, and Jesus goes down into the waters of baptism, and he comes up out of the waters, and what are the words that come breaking out of heaven? You are my son. This would not have been lost on the people. The people would have said, he's just been installed. He's the king. God's taking the world back in him. Everything changes now that he's here. God just said, you are my beloved son. That's the song we've been singing for a thousand years in Psalm chapter two, and it was all true. God can be trusted. Years and years of waiting are giving way to fulfillment. Speaking of opening words, we don't just hear the opening words of the installation speech by which God installs his son as king. We hear the opening words of the king's speech himself. Verse 15, what's the first thing he says? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. You've been waiting and now fulfillment starts. So what do we see taking place? We'll just walk through these more quickly. We see a number of things from here on in Mark's gospel. We see Jesus has authority over evil powers. So if you didn't believe what Jesus said about the inbreaking of his kingdom, he just says, watch me work. The, he will say in another place, the works that I do bear witness. They testify themselves that I'm not just blowing smoke when I say I'm taking the world back. Watch me work. And when you watch him work, what happens? You're not even out of chapter one before this man with an, who's oppressed by an evil spirit, right? This demonic spirit. And how does it play out? Look at verse 24. The demon is talking. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is amazing because, you know, you're reading through the Gospels and people often in the Gospels don't understand. They're blind to the true identity of Jesus Christ. Even religious leaders are blind to the true identity of Jesus Christ. If you want to know who Jesus is, watch what the demons do when he walks up. And then you'll find out who he really is. Because the demons come up and the first thing they do is beg for mercy. They come up and they're on bended knee. They say, is it time for you to destroy us yet? They know this guy, everything hinges on him. They know he's the king, he has the power, he tells us which way to go, right? You watch Jesus in Mark's gospel and what do you see? You see a glimpse of what's coming. You, you see a glimpse of the age to come breaking in to the present. God is taking his world back and all of hell can't do a thing to stop him. There's a, a movie that came out several years ago called Ocean's Eleven and it's basically just a big heist. And there's a group of people who are involved in this heist and there's a ringleader. And, uh, and, and the crazy thing about the ringleader of the heist is he calls his arch nemesis and says, so we're going to steal and we're going to steal from you. Uh, he tells him in advance 
what's gonna happen. And he even, he's on the phone with him telling him what's going on and he even shows up in the casino while the heist is going on, right? It's just this massive audacity thing that's going on there. Well, when you follow Jesus in, in chapter three of Mark's gospel, here's what Jesus says. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Now, who is the ringleader of this salvation heist? And the answer is Jesus. And he's notifying the enemy of what he's gonna do. You almost, you see those words in Mark 3, 27, and you say, Jesus, don't give away the plan. You know, don't tell him where to go. Don't tell him what you're up to. But Jesus, don't miss it. He walks through Mark's gospel like he owns the place. He is not afraid to serve Notice, he tells Satan, basically, here's how it's gonna go down. I'm gonna walk into your house, this fallen world where you have held sway. I'm gonna tie you up and I'm gonna take your stuff. I'm gonna plunder your house and you're just gonna have to sit there and watch me. And if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you are the plunder of God. He has robbed Satan blind, taking you as his own. Jesus has authority over evil powers. Second, Jesus has authority over disease and death and creation itself. So it's amazing. You know, Jesus tells evil spirits to be quiet before we're even out of chapter one, and they be quiet. He tells them to leave, and they leave. And then a couple chapters later, he rebukes winds and waves. He says, be still, and they listen. So people start asking questions. Wait, so who can talk to evil spirits and they obey him? Who can talk to winds and waves and forces of nature and chaos and they obey his command? Who does this? It says they're terrified because they realize they were standing in the presence of the Holy One himself. And then even the finality of death is overcome by Jesus when he walks up to graves and people, Jairus' daughter, and he says, come back. Lazarus, come forth. And they come out of the grave. Who, who does this? King does, that's who. Because he's taken the world back and he's given you a preview of where he's taking history. In other words, we're seeing that Jesus, the son of God, is installed as king and he has the authority to do this. He's not just talking, he's gonna do it. And everywhere the gospel message is preached and everywhere the gospel of the kingdom is believed in Mark's gospel, this kingdom comes breaking into people's lives, breaking into time and space. But notice this, Jesus first commands. Repent, believe, and come with me. The time, verse 15, is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. So there's the announcement and it comes with commands. Repent and believe the good news. And then moments later, he talks to two fishermen and he says, you're coming with me, follow me. And they do it. (laughs) They, They drop their nets, they leave the business and they follow him. And he says, I'm gonna teach you to fish for people. So he's involving them, he's calling them, right? What does this mean for us? You think about the implications of this. It means the good news of the kingdom of God is provisionally good news depending on what you do with it. The promise of kingdom benefit is conditioned on response. And by the way, it contains an implied threat for those who spurn it, for those who treat him with indifference. So he says repent and believe in the gospel 
and come with me. All right, in scripture, there are three threads that are kind of interwoven repeatedly. The king, a people, and a kingdom. So the king is Jesus. And the people, you can see him gathering. He's the king, and now he starts immediately gathering a people. This should be no surprise. The king will have a people. And so he walks up to two guys, and that's where it starts. Then he calls 12 other guys to follow him. 12 disciples, that number's not lost. It's a reboot. We're starting something new. It's a nucleus of the new people of God, and he calls them to submit to his reign. We're starting anew. It's a new beginning. And then what does he do? He involves them in the work of the kingdom. He says, I've been teaching and proclaiming and healing. You're gonna be teaching and proclaiming and healing. You're gonna start fishing for people, kingdom people, inviting them into the kingdom. Tom Schreiner, a New Testament uh, scholar, writes these words, when the kingdom comes, human beings are restored to their rightful condition. They become sane and sensible. So he's drawing all of this from Mark's gospel, by the way. No demon anywhere is a match for Jesus. The hardest cases melt at the power of his word. Jesus should have become unclean when the ceremonially unclean woman touched him, but the situation was reversed. Jesus' cleanness eradicated the uncleanness of the woman. Jesus has authority over storms and calms them at his word. Here is a foretaste of the new world that is coming. And friends, there is only one way to enter into the kingdom of God, and it is to put your trust in what Jesus Christ the King has done, namely in his living of a perfect life, in his dying as a substitute for sinners, and in his rising triumphant over Satan and sin and death. The God who gives his life to rescue sinners is a God who can be trusted. You can trust him. He's good, who does this? Who gives his life to save his enemies? You can trust him, he's good. We need, we need a master class on waiting because we easily forget, don't we? And next thing you know, we're asking for Advent's blessings and Advent's fulfillment on Amazon's timetable. Or we get mixed up in other ways. We want the first part of verse 15 and we don't want the second part of verse 15. We want the rescue, we don't want the repentance. We want the fulfillment that appeals to our sight rather than a fulfillment that deepens our faith. Mark's gospel, friends, is not content to just inform us about the mighty one who has come, Jesus Christ. It is meant to impress us with the majesty and greatness and rule and power of the king. Because here's the deal. Why is Mark doing this? What's he gunning for? Under divine inspiration, what's he after? The bigger Jesus gets in your eyes, the more you're gonna want to trust him. The more you're gonna be inclined to trust him, the more God's purposes will direct your life, your ambitions, your hopes, directing you into what matters the most, right? When Jesus gets bigger, we see through Satan's deceptions, we see through Satan's lies, we don't force God to let me track the package of where my joy is, is it stuck in Iowa, that's not okay. No, we, it changes, it reorients us to the God who is there, right? Instead, instead of all that, what do we do? We get our advent on, we wait in the gap between promises made and promises kept, and we wait in silence and we wait in trust. 
We wait calling upon him knowing that he who promised is faithful. That's how we do Advent. The king came into this world and he showed us a preview of where he is taking history for all who believe. The king lived, the king died, the king rose again. To what end? So that you and I could enter into the kingdom of God, so that you and I could say, God can be trusted.